0: As we begin, I'd like to thank the newest Patreon members of the podcast for becoming ongoing supporters of the show. Thank you, Simon Delegue, Mark Toynton, Oliver Hawksley, James Bright, Jenna Ludwig, Mark Howard, William Hubel, Elliot Fink, Claire Luchkina, Emily Thomas Anderson, Oliver Gould, and Stacia Simonson. I'd also like to thank David High and Saul Alanis for increasing your monthly pledges. Find out more about the unique rewards for supporters and sign up today by going to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Do you prefer making a one-time donation? Go to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or you can send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Rhonda Baird editor of Permaculture Design Magazine, and designer and educator at Sheltering Hills Design, LLC. Today we talk about the social side of permaculture, and what we can do, as individuals and a community, to create boundaries that lead to deeper respect for ourselves and each other. To fight for something, rather than against, through small and slow solutions. The power we have, as minority voices, to create social change. The impact that being face-to-face with others can have on engaging with and resolving the issues faced by our community and the broader world. This is a conversation about sitting with things that are often uncomfortable, but necessary for transforming the world we have into the one that we want to see. Enjoy this conversation with Rhonda, and I'll join you again afterward. Then Rhonda, tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to Permaculture, and working as the editor of Permaculture Design Magazine.
1: Yeah, so I came out of what I've heard David Holmgren describe as a, a second wave of environmental activism. I was graduating from college or act, so I would say activated in my high school years, but then moving into college and I graduated in 1997 and had been doing already at that point some environmental and social organizing work and just dove right into that. So I took up community labor and environmental organizing work from 1997 to 2005 and included in that some six years in a domestic violence program working with domestic violence and homelessness. And in those years, sort of tried to tie it all together and kept burning out and getting going from one thing to another And also going back and forth between academics and organizing work. So in 2005, I was actually dropping out of grad school for the second time. And I literally fell into my permaculture design course with Peter Bain and Keith Johnson because the department owed me summer tuition. And I could go hang out on this 200-acre property that was a, a friend of mine's. That I've been going to for a long time, and so that's how I got into permaculture.
0: And then was it through that relationship with Peter and Keith when you were studying them that you came to work with perma? Well, it was permaculture Activist at the time, but now Permaculture Design Magazine.
1: It was, yeah. So I before I even finished my PDC, I knew from my academic work that I liked teaching. And Peter asked what I would like to do, and that I sort of tentatively said, I think I might want to teach. And he said, okay, let's have you apprentice with me. So I started apprenticing in the fall of 2005. At that point, I'd been living in Bloomington, Indiana for about 10 years. And in the spring of 2006, he and Keith moved to Bloomington from Earth Haven. And so we carried on the apprenticeship. And it took a couple of more years. And then I started working with the magazine doing first the back pages Uh, layout, and then the layout of the whole magazine. And now I'm the editor underneath John Wages.
0: And then it was through that work that you passed on an article to me that came from Jeremy Lynch from IPC India that was held last year about small and slow solutions. And I was really interested in talking with you about that because of your background in organizing and with labor. And then what Jeremy was writing about was David Holmgren spoke about the way that we can as permaculture practitioners or anybody interested in earth care, that we only need to take a small number of us moving forward in a particular direction through actions like boycotts or strikes or just changing our consumption patterns to make a big difference in the world. And I was wondering if you could lead us through those kinds of thoughts and we can just see where the conversation goes from there.
1: Yeah, I'm I really appreciative to Jeremy Lynch for, for framing and writing. About his experiences at IPC, and um, the whole series is pretty amazing. But that notion that he sort of reported on from David Holmgren of this thought that oh, we have you know the the storyline has been we have to reach the mainstream, we have to change everybody, we have to do this culture change piece on a, a grand scale, and then this counter idea that really it's these smaller groups, local action is really inspiring and it, it's critical I think I, I really agree with Holmgren there because you know we just it's nourishing and it's it's actually completely within our design philosophy to be doing that local work right because we're when we work at that scale we get the immediate feedback we can adjust our behaviors we build our work on Things that are really solid and meaningful to ourselves and to others, uh, we can see the impact that we have. That, to me, is is an incredibly inspiring model, um, and it is an attractive one, and it it helps, I think, foster a sense of respect. I mean, I keep using this word respect in a lot of conversations lately, but really, what I'm meaning is like solid boundaries and firm connections, right? And I see this desire, you know, I've been, I've certainly held that we have to convert the masses to some grand vision is very much akin to a lot of activism that I see in the world, environmental activism, social a- activism, and it's, you know, I I told people a lot in my when I came into permaculture and sort of caught the bug that I, I spent all those years labor organizing or community organizing in, in urban environments, and rural environments, in environmental activism, especially fighting against things. And that's where a lot of the burnout came from. I was tying into a lot of negative emotion and despair even and it will drain a person.
0: I think about all that energy that goes into something like that and the way that it drags us down. And I've heard within like organizational development and organizational psychology that there's some things coming out that it's this, the reason sometimes we think so much about that negative side is because we're more likely to, that it's like two to one that we think about the negative as opposed to the positive. And so when we kind of go down that road when we're fighting against something, it really does take more of our thoughts and energy as we apply it in that way, as opposed to if we're working on these really constructive programs that feed us, if you will, provide an emotional or a social yield, that those kinds of things help to bolster us as opposed to constantly fighting and arguing, but finding those people we can connect with and really do good work. And it's one of the things that I think about when I see these numbers is that I was very much in that same boat for a long time, was that the tipping point was when we reach 51%, because that's when it's a majority, or really, you know, 50.001. But as soon as we get that first person who's past that 50% mark, that that's when the the wave of change will come. But then it was talking with Karen and ramanujan about her pattern language for women, that the numbers that she had was that it's a 30% solution. That once we start moving so that 30% of the teachers are women, people of color, LGB, TQ+, and these other diverse backgrounds, that then the conversation starts to shift. But then seeing what David wrote about, that it's 5 to 10%, and I've also seen some similar numbers from some other organizers, that that's all that we need. And when I think about that, that's one or two families on a block, a couple of thousand people in a community to just care about something enough to make that change.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's that much. And I even am getting the feeling like my a knowing sense that what we need is for people to identify their intersectionalities about who they are. Right. So, you know, I'm a woman permaculture teacher and I'm a, the editor of permaculture design magazine. Right. But my class, my sexual orientation, you know, these things that are invisible to people generally and and there are assumptions made by people who don't know me that's where that respect piece comes back in in terms of even if we could just identify the diversity within our own current groups of people and the people that we have connections with and we need to create safe spaces for people to be able to do that but just strengthening those connections and claiming our full selves would strengthen and enliven and enrich what we already have in place.
0: I hear safe spaces a lot, but I don't come from that kind of a background. And I'm just wondering, what does that mean to you in the context of our conversation today to create those kinds of spaces? And then I'll follow up on that.
1: I'm indebted to Graham Burnett from the UK for his language on a safer spaces policy, which I have Adopted For any course that I'm mostly a team member of, but certainly a lead teacher on, there's a whole policy. It's very technical. But the simpler thing is to be present with each other, to be able to hold ourselves open and in integrity and actively listen, right? And go back to respect the other person and their differences. I really think that key of being present and connecting is critical to the success of our movement, whether it's on a grander scale, but certainly it works better at that localized, small neighborhood, regional, sort of daily interaction level.
0: Those are the places where we can be face-to-face and do the work with the people in front of us?
1: hmm Exactly. Yeah, that's the critical thing. And I think some of us, and I'm guilty of this, have been running around trying as, you know, as hard and working long hours and putting out all of this effort, as we were talking about earlier, to reach all these other people we don't have connections with, we aren't present with. And we could be more effective just working with the people right around us.
0: That speaks a lot to a lot of the writing and work that I've been doing recently is about that idea that it is in the moment, in the present, with who we're in touch with, as opposed to that it's not about the next class, it's not about the next festival or the next workshop, it's right here, right now. Who is it that we're working with? And it's not to say that, you know, convergences, you know, at the national, international or local level aren't important for networking or anything else because they're vital for us to get to know one another face-to-face as part of the broader movement, but that I find, I guess, even for myself, when I get a class coming up or some kind of a conference, I get excited about it and I start thinking and planning for it, and then that becomes this thing that's in the future that I'm working towards while my local community may not get the attention that it needs right then and there, that I don't slow down and have those conversations with those people who are seeking more information or just want some time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm really blessed in my own life in that I help to put a magazine out four times a year and, off, and I always write an editorial now. And in that moment that I'm writing, I'm being present as much as possible with the people that I envision or know to be reading that magazine. But I don't really know when or where they'll be or what mind frame they'll be in when they, when they read those words. And so it's just sort of a hope that it's effective writing and you know i'm connected to the north american permaculture convergence and certainly we're having these conversations maybe we don't like the international model maybe we don't meet as frequently as we have in the past maybe we emphasize building up local and regional events you know and lend our support and voice to that so that people can have more face-to-face conversations with people who are going through more similar things to themselves. On the other side of that, I have two children still at home and one involved in a homeschooling cooperative. And one of the greatest joys in my life and very much a permaculture experience for me is the deep conversation and connection I get to have with the other parents involved in the cooperative and with the children involved. So I think we do need those experiences locally. You know, we need to sort of take stock of our local social ecology and how we're showing up and where the opportunities are for change, to introduce ideas, to sort of redesign what's around us And apply our ethics. And then, you know, we also get to do regional or continental convergences and write for publications and things like that.
0: And after working on organizing three permaculture convergences locally here over the last few years, I have a much deeper appreciation for the amount of work that goes into that kind of organizing and why and how it can feel so difficult on a local scale to do that, to bring people together and start to have these kinds of conversations on like a formal level like that. But what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that it can be as simple as just having those conversations with our friends and neighbors and starting there and kind of working outward within our local community.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a model that I've taught and encouraged and tried to practice within my own world of, you know, first- showing up and working with what's in your own household, however that household is comprised, but just doing your best at applying the ethics and, and principles and design process to that. And then working within your neighborhood as sort of the next tier out, how can we potluck or get to know a neighbor or share some plants or witness and support each other? And then, you know, out into the the community however large that is for you whatever that feels right for me that's a city of 80,000 people plus 40,000 college students you know there's a network that reaches into that and then up to for the the next step for me is sort of not even the state level but the Great Rivers and Lakes Permaculture Institute um, which is a six-state regional group like that's the next connecting level out, and then the continental one, and then maybe the global one. I haven't even gone to an international convergence because I've just not felt that I've done enough local work yet.
0: What does that local work look like for you in your case and in your context there in Indiana?
1: I mean, like I said, the some of its extensions off of our home life, so the homeschooling cooperative. Is a part of that, a piece of that for me, and an anchor because somebody has to be somewhere at a certain time at a certain day. And I've been able to bring permaculture into the cooperative, and also lately I've been teaching a course on backstrap loom weaving. It's a fun thing to do. I was like, if I could weave all day every day, I probably would. So that, and then another project I've done, gotten into locally, is helping to plant. 500 food-bearing trees in some neighborhoods that where that are sort of lower income, more vulnerable populations to help with food security. I've helped to convene the Permaculture Guild. And my next project with that is to facilitate a three-part conversation on what I call a community inventory. It's inspired by a piece that Tom Ward helped write for the magazine last year. And so I want to to do that because I live in a, a pretty progressive community, but everyone is sort of siloed, and I see permaculture design as knitting together those efforts into a more comprehensive and effective whole. And the community inventory process is intended. And I envision it to help find where the lack of communication and synergy is happening and then help to fill in the gaps. And, you know, my aim is to be the facilitator and the connector in that situation. So I don't know what will come out of it. But I'm hoping that it will strengthen the network of change and and provide more impetus and energy for change in my community.
0: And that really speaks to the power of permaculture as a design system as we continue to utilize it and understand the way that these ethics and principles can apply to so much more than just the landscape. Doing that inventory, I think about something that was taught in my permaculture design course was looking at your community through the zone model, from your own home out to your neighborhood to the other places in your community and, and getting to know like where are your mom and pop shops you know, where are your, are your other local or regional retailers, what kind of jobs and industry are available in the area, and getting a real on-the-ground understanding of where all those things are and how they interact, because then we can help people to better apply what it is that they're already doing within the framework of permaculture.
1: Right. And I'm cautious and, and careful about saying, oh, you can be you can be better. <laughs> <laughs> right. As an organizer, I've found that to be a real turnoff to people. But to say, I have a set of tools and I'm willing to take time to be with you to see if if anything I have to offer is interesting to you, you know, or would be helpful, please take that.
0: And the one thing that I wanted to loop back to from what you said earlier when we were talking about respect and getting to know the diversity within our community. There's been some threads of conversation, largely online, I haven't encountered this personally, about the issues of racism and sexism and harassment within our community as a whole, from different folks who have experienced this in classes or in communication with others. And in trying to take a positive or regenerative approach to these kinds of issues. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions? And I know this is a really big question, a huge can of worms that I'm throwing out here for what we can do to be able to recognize that diversity in other individuals, as well as the permaculture community, so that we might begin to organize around these ideas and start to address them systemically.
1: Yeah, the first thing is there are two thoughts that come to mind. So they're interrelated but a little different and the first thought that came back was just again being present if I am a person who you know the complexity of who I am I need to be someone to be present with me and it needs to be relevant to the conversation for me to share all of the complexity of who I am people just need that and it goes back to having those relationships And so I think there's, first of all, that's the first practice is to be present and to be, to embody the best of who we can be and the vision of who we are as permaculture practitioners and and people on the planet by holding that space and being ourselves. And the other thought that came to mind is that, and this is such a huge can of worms, but when I worked in domestic violence program, I very much went into it as primarily women were coming to the program, and so it was sort of a, women always need to be empowered, and it had a very black and white view of the woman is always right, and the man is always wrong. And I'm not saying that that, like in permaculture, like it all depends, is the the first First reply. You know, it's like it's more nuanced than that. It's not quite as black and white as that. And yes, people who are subjugated to violence absolutely need space held for them and need to be protected, and violence needs to end. And yet, I live in a small enough community, and I've seen it in small enough communities where the person who perpetrated the violence also needs to heal, also is a person. Also, needs to move forward in their life with support. And at first, that was very confusing to me, you know, why the domestic violence program offered support to people who had usually been court mandated to attend some sort of training or program. And yet, I see it as an incredibly valuable piece, just like the restorative justice circles. I think that's a great tool for people. And so, I think it's valuable for us to humble ourselves just a little bit and to be not so stark in our polarization, you know, in our thinking, but to sit with things that are uncomfortable and think, okay, how do we hold this person who maybe had, you know, made poor choices in the past, but has grown or this person who is still making poor choices? how do we respond in a way that is clear about the needs of the community, but also draws a boundary about acceptable behavior or unacceptable behavior? I think we have a lot of conversations to be had. And I think the first place to start, like I said, is with not making assumptions about the other person in the room, you know, the other, the person that I'm connecting to.
0: So then as individuals, as teachers or facilitators, as we begin to model this kind of action, it kind of goes back to what David was saying and what you were sharing with us about the small numbers that we need for change, that once a handful of people begin to, if you will, exemplify this kind of restorative action to hold space for someone to heal, then that will allow a place for the community as a whole to begin to take these kinds of actions. And the idea of things like restorative justice, restorative circles will become more and more commonplace and a tool that we can readily work with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And restorative justice, restorative circles are absolutely a place to begin, you know, our nonviolent communication as a tool. I've been doing a lot of not a lot, but I've begun to, to learn about sociocracy or dynamic governance. And I am becoming pretty passionate about that in particular because most permaculture people work not by themselves, off alone in a corner, but in groups. And using these group tools, sociocracy is a tool for a group to have greater uh, equity and transparency within the group. So while I might be having a conversation with an individual and there might be healing on, on that level and a greater de- a degree of connection and intimacy that allows for healing to happen and I, and I hope that I'm able to bring that to a relationship with another person. A lot of the work has to be done in groups as well. And so small groups that have long-term bonds and f- connection Can be extremely effective both in processing and healing, in recreating or moving through some of these polarizations. To be seen in your fullness within a group is a very strong human need for belonging. And so I think for people listening who are part of groups, finding those tools that help you strengthen your connections, who strengthen your process, your group process, you know, those are a few to go to, but certainly there are others. So we want to find them.
0: And that goes back to that idea of it depends and finding what works best for your group and your community.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think depending on like any good craftsman, you need to have a good set of tools. You need to know what works in the right situation in the right place. So some, you know, restorative justice has, has a particular use. It's not necessarily useful in every situation, right? And dynamic governance helps us to facilitate true governance and agreement between people, and, you know, in small groups and working on projects. Um, I think there are a lot of applications for that one. But they're different, different things. And, and, I, and I sort of leave it open and vague because I don't think we've discovered everything yet. You know, I think... Part of the reason we're searching around this topic is that we haven't gotten all the tools yet. New things are about to emerge, and hopefully they're very positive ones.
0: I say sometimes that I don't think that permaculture is going to be the system that changes the world, but it's certainly one of the systems that can transition us to those ideas that will.
1: It's a bridge to something else, you know. When I entered permaculture i had been in graduate school for religious studies and in particular i was looking at how buddhism developed in india and moved from india to china and on to japan and i think what i was really looking for in those moments is how does a culture change how how do groups of people envision something new and or evolutionary or emergent and bring it forward. And you know, I yeah, I agree. I think permaculture is a piece of that, but it's not the end product.
0: I think it was Taj Shakluna, the permapixie, who said that we are in an ongoing period of transition. And I certainly feel that way as more information comes available and all the different ways that we can connect with people that weren't available just you know, even a few years ago as someone who's grown up not quite a millennial but has spent almost his entire life connected or with some form of access to the internet, I'm still amazed with all the new tools that we have for sharing and collaborating and seeing all of these ideas of like direct democracy and how that's becoming a more prevalent tool. The ways that conflict resolution is becoming conflict transformation that we have nonviolent communication and even that is emerging to become a more collective group process that creates more vulnerability but more opportunity to heal and restore it's an amazing time to live in
1: it is it, it's really it's really exciting and you know as someone who is a little older you know i and all my adult life there's been internet but i you know didn't have it growing up i think there's also the balance of that is being able to sift through and find where the boundaries need to be so that there is a body of something however those boundaries are created to be able to say this is the peace for us this is who we are we're so interconnected we have so much access to information, but are we making decisions on at the right scale? Like we need to be able to sift that, right? And that goes back to what we've been talking about in terms of where, you know, when I say a locality, when I say what my community is this, where are the boundaries of that? You know, they, it has to have a boundary in order to be meaningful at some point in order to, for there to be action and accountability.
0: I take that idea of boundaries and I think of of interpersonal and social boundaries and that idea that the word no is a complete sentence and also the importance of being able to establish within our community healthy relationships by setting boundaries about what is appropriate for us and our actions and what our desires or expectations are from those people who we live with in community, whether that's an intentional community that's very close and intense or just with our friends and neighbors.
1: Yeah, um, it's taking me back to the issue of the magazine where we took up the idea of the commons and David Ballier and Dave Jackie had been doing work on that subject at about the same time and it came out that and this is what got me thinking about it, is that the commons can be managed for the betterment of all, but that commons needs to have a boundary. It needs to have rules then. Once there's a boundary and a group who are responsible for that commons, then the appropriate rules can emerge in response to the needs and, and sort of systems of that, of that commons. And what a lot of people have tended to think is that a common, once it's in the commons, it's a free for all and anybody can use it. And that's a very challenging idea because. If it's a free-for-all, then the resource will be depleted because there are no boundaries anymore, right? So how do we effectively find and draw those boundaries where we need to? You know, how do we work at those scales? And it goes back to household, neighborhood, community, region. Could be country, could be continent, whatever is most appropriate for you, global, and then global thinking and global systems?
0: It's interesting for me because of kind of this liminal space that I'm in, because I'm, I'm a little too old to be classified as a millennial generationally. But because of my experiences and coming from a family that had early access to technology, I joke that I may not be a millennial, but I certainly caucus with them. And for many of my friends and I growing up, We were reading the news articles and everything that said that we were going to be on Mars by, you know, the year 2000 and all of these other things that I think that for a lot of us made us kind of global citizens and then being able to have conversations with people all over the world. And some of my friends and I on early chat channels that predate AOL and some of those other things, being able to have a conversation at 10 or 11 o'clock at night with somebody who's living in Singapore and there were so many of us, those early adopters, who have that interaction and worldview. And even now, as an adult, all those people who I went to college with, many of us just kind of scattered to the wind and were able to live anywhere we want and kind of be whatever we wanted. And it really, it changes the line of what those boundaries would be. And how do we define them now? Because that, that idea of the neighborhood has gone away. And there's a, I think it's the radical fairies is a non-geographic community. I think they even may refer to themselves as an intentional community. And they set their boundaries based on who self-selects in. And I can see that as being part of, of both our permaculture community and also using that then to connect with other people and having a group of communities that we're a part of, that we're taking action with based on perhaps its shared interests or occupation or our actual physical location or bioregion. But yeah, that I think makes it even even stickier and hard to kind of establish some of those lines without clear, deep and often probably hard conversations.
1: That is the truth, is that we have to participate. Well have to, but most of the time we participate in all these different levels of community. So I have, you know, I have my physical community, my you know, my household and my neighborhood and moving on out and And then, yeah, I do actually most of the people I interact with on a regular basis and recurring basis. It's online meetings. You know, increasingly, it's all around the world. And so it's almost another form of intersectionality in how we choose to participate in community and and how we spend our time. And I see this as an incredibly, an incredible luxury to be able to do this especially living in the united states to have so much freedom to be able to connect with people in different communities just because of the technology being available mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily true in belize or in you know laos or you know the scale is very different in the in places around the globe and we forget that most of the time
0: that internal bias and the things that we look for that then confirms our worldview. Yeah. Cause I think of technology and an article and an article that I read a few years ago about tribesmen in the Middle East who are using cell phones in order to communicate where to take their herds and using technology in that way to communicate. But that's not, that's not a universal by any means, but it just happens to be one of these examples of how technology is being used and that as much as I'm a geek and a nerd and I love all of these things, needing to be able to step back and remember the space that I come from and the different things that reinforce how I see the world.
1: Absolutely. And to see them in a context of time and anticipating the trending, you know, one way or another, and that depends on your worldview, what you anticipate and how to use that tool in the time that you have. And an incredible, it can be an incredible inspiration, an incredible tool to use for local action, for action at different levels and scales. But I still think our effectiveness increases the more we move into regional and local communities. Our voice, you know, is weighted more heavily.
0: I certainly think that we could have another conversation on that idea. And as I think about it, I'd really like to to talk about how we can come to that kind of a space. And especially if we could couch that in the idea of bioregionalism, whether that's from our watershed or from the landforms that define a certain place. But I see our time and I know that you've got to get ready to go prepare for a permaculture design course that you're going to be teaching here soon. So with the time that we have remaining... Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners before we draw this to a close?
1: I've really enjoyed and appreciate the time that you've shared with me here today. And I didn't in- anticipate that we would move into this being present with each other kind of conversation and how that can be an effective uh, or a means to have a, a richer life and also a richer community life, moving us toward activism in a way. And so, yeah, I'd welcome another conversation about working in our bioregion or or bioregionalism. And yeah, I'm excited and thinking about the adventure I have ahead of me.
0: Well, I look forward to being able to have a follow-up conversation here in a couple of months. You can let us know what your trip to teach at Maya Mountain and in Belize was like. And how that time came together for you and your students who I'm sure come from a wide variety of diverse backgrounds from all over the world for that kind of a course and we can talk more about how we can use these ideas and what we've learned in the time in between. So thank you Rhonda for joining me today and for all your work with Permaculture Design Magazine and in our community.
1: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: And that was Rhonda Baird. Find out more about her work at permaculturedesignmagazine.com and shelteringhills.net. You'll find links to those and so much more in the resource section of the show notes. As Rhonda is the editor of Permaculture Design Magazine, I'm working with the publisher John Wages to give away a copy of Toby Hemingway's Gaia's Garden to a podcast listener, and a one-year subscription to Permaculture Design Magazine to a Patreon supporter. If you'd like to enter the giveaway for Toby's book, email show at with the subject, Gaia's Garden. I'll randomly draw a winner on May 20th, so get your entry in soon. For the subscription to Permaculture Design Magazine, Patreon supporters will find that in their feed on May 1st, which will run through Thursday, May 10th. As always, leave a comment there to enter to win. If you're not a Patreon supporter, you can sign up at patreon.com permaculturepodcast. After listening to this interview, I'd like to ask you to have a conversation today where you make the effort to be fully present with someone, face-to-face. To put away anything that might distract you, like a cell phone or other screen, and to clear your thoughts so you can focus on just that other person. Don't know where to begin? Ask them, how are they? Or, to tell you a story about their day, and then as they respond, sit with them and listen. And then have another conversation, where you make yourself fully present, tomorrow and the next day. If you did that, just once for a few minutes every day, how would that action, that one conversation, change the world? Let me know. And if there is any way I can help you with your efforts, I'm here. Leave a comment in the show notes, or contact me directly. Call 717-827-6266, email show at com or write, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode, recorded by co-host David Bilbrey, is a conversation with Otto Sharmer, a senior lecturer at MIT and author of the recently released The Essentials of Theory U. Until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by being face-to-face and present with others as you take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.